Welcome to our cur- curated chatter Friday feature. I'm Paige. I'm Anna. We're so excited to be interviewing Nancy Yao Masbach, who has served as the president of the Museum of Chinese in America, abbreviated as MOCA, since 2015. Founded in 1980, the Museum of Chinese in America is dedicated to preserving and presenting the history, heritage, culture, and diverse experiences of people and Chinese descent in the United States. Located at 215 Center Street here in New York, the museum strives to be a model among interactive museums through its innovative exhibitions, educational, and cultural programs. The museum began as a community-based organization founded in 1980 as the New York Chinatown History Project. It was created to develop a better understanding of our Chinese-American history and community and to respond to the concern that memories and experiences of aging older generations would perish without oral history, photo documentation, research, and collecting efforts. Nancy has more than 20 years of leadership experience in governance of non-profit organizations for-profit management, including staff and board positions at the Community Fund for Women and Girls, International Festival of Arts and Ideas, Tessitura Network, Goldman Sachs, Council on Foreign Relations, CNN, the Center for Finance and Research Analysis, and Aberdeen Standard Investments. So before we begin, we like to ask everyone that we interview our curated chatter three, which are just three like low-stakes questions. So our first one, what is your favorite museum? That is so um, unfair. Yeah, <laughs> we realize that. You know, uh, well, okay, my favorite, favorite museum is Stepping Stones. Um, and that's a children's museum in Connecticut, um, in Norwalk. Um, and I love it because not only it has wonderful, innovative exhibits, and a good friend of mine did one on healthy eating habits and healthy life, but it's because of the patrons. Um, and it has a door for people who are like under four feet, you know, for children. And then, um, you know, normal door- doors for like adults and, 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 and taller people. But I love it because of um, the excitement um, by, by the visitors. And there are all these science and water-based experiments. And I really like interactive uh, museums where you can touch and feel and all the senses are, are part of it. But of course, MOCA is my favorite, favorite museum. But... <laughs> I just, I just love Stepping Stones so much. And it's for all ages, even though it's a children's museum. Oh, we'll have to check yeah, it we'll out. Yeah, we'll have to check it out. I recently went to Connecticut for the first time. Yeah. <laughs> You'll have to go. So number two is what's your go-to coffee order? I'm so boring. But I do have like a 12-year-old and a 13-year-old. And they're really into the char- into Charlie, you know, who and she has a drink at Dunkin' Donuts. So unfortunately, she's also 12, like she never finishes her drink. So I I end up drinking it and it's too sweet and it's, you know, too, but I kind of like it as my like secret weird um, leftover indulgence. Um, But I always drink just black coffee, skim milk. Um, But I always sneak in her leftover drinks that are like overpriced, but like delicious. It's like the $10 latte. (laughs) And then our last um, curated chatter three question is your earliest or favorite art memory. Oh my goodness. These are so good. And I was thinking about, um, you know, I, I, um, I love that feeling of going into a museum that has um, expansive pieces that, um, are, are unfamiliar. Um, and I think about the first time, um, I went, uh, to the Met, 
Um, and it, 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 it's, you know, so much. And, you know, I went back to the Met just recently um, during quarantine, you know, two weeks ago or so. And I realized that it's so dominant in European art um, and so dominant even in the American history section. It's so dominant on European American history. And there's not there's not one Asian American you know face in the American history section, which is you know disappointing. But at the same time, like that, that experience of going to a museum and having it's so voluminous, right? And that you can just have that expansiveness. And even though there are thousands of people in this one building with you, you still feel free and light. And you want music to be playing from you know from from every part of the museum. And you kind of want to just run around in the lobby. And I think it's not just the, the the works that can be larger and give you a greater sense of um, of just feeling what is possible. And I think that's what art is for me. It's like what is possible, and I and and, and that expansiveness just like gives you the, again that that um, sensory sense, you know, just like a, 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 a possibility. And and I love that. That's my favorite art. I mean, just in terms of. That the first time I went to the Met, and I didn't pay anything because it used to be pay what you want, and you just get that little pin and you'd pin it on your, you know, thing, and you're like, I kind of gave a quarter, but I'm a cheap, you know, I'm a poor student, <laughs> and I would keep the pins, and they're always different colors, and now they give you, the yeah, stickers. they give you the stickers now. It's yeah. not the same. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So diving into our main interview questions now. You've worked with such an interesting and diverse group of nonprofit and for-profit organizations. Were you always aware of MOCA and like what drew you to your current position? Oh, you know, I guess I'm old enough. I'm 48 and um, I like to share my age because sometimes people don't know the context of like where you are and how, where you're speaking from in terms of years of experience. And I always encourage people to share their age because also it's it's interesting because 48 is a multiple of 12. And in Chinese culture, um, if you do five rounds of 12, so when you're 60, it's considered a complete life. And even though that's quite young in our minds these days, but it's considered like a full life cycle. Um, and I'm at 48, so I'm sort of like at that mark where I'm like four-fifths life cycle. And, <laughs> and I've been thinking about that a lot because I'm seeing more like circles, things coming back around. Uh, and I and I find that, you know, I heard about MOCA when I was probably about 10 years old. Um, and, you know, I'm a born and raised New Yorker. You know, I grew up in Flushing before Flushing was Flushing. It was much more Italian-American Jewish. And, you know, I felt like a Jewish woman growing up because I was always like in Orthodox <laughs> neighborhoods. And, you know, I was the one who shut the lights off and put the bikes away um, on the Sabbath when, they, when the kids forgot to do it. And, you know, I, I grew up in such a culture like that. But... My mom didn't speak English very well, and we went into Chinatown every weekend, and she would go to this building at 70 Mulberry Street, which coincidentally is where the fire was and where our collections were. But that was the original place where New York Chinatown History Project was, and that was the precursor to MOCA. And I remember MOCA. I remember it. You know, I remember the photographs on the wall and I remember seeing Chinese faces on a wall, and I remember being extremely confused. Like, what, why would this photo be worthy of being in a museum space? And it, it, because I was so used to not being focused on as a Chinese, as a minority person. Um, so I think that that was, um, when it came full circle, you know, I said, oh my goodness, this is MOCA. 
and, and I, I remembered it. And I was always close to Chinatown. We went to Chinatown every week. And I lived in Chinatown when I came back from Hong Kong after working in Hong Kong with Goldman Sachs. I came back. I lived in uh, Chinatown, even though I'm not Cantonese speaking. So predominantly their dialect in Chinatown is Toysanese or Cantonese. I'm a Mandarin speaking. We came after 1965 as a family. But it's sort of this like full circle. And I felt a real draw, attraction that I was meant to be at MoCA. Like all the skills I had learned along the way set me up for being at MoCA. And I just celebrated six years. Congratulations. Yeah, congratulations. <laughs> and it's so amazing you were able to learn about it when you were so young and that it was almost part of your childhood. It really was. It's, it's, and, and that's when, the, you know, you don't, MoCA has really made a name for itself, you know, in the last 40 years. But um, even like the Jewish Museum, the Jewish Heritage Museum, the Center for Jewish History, the Holocaust Museum, when you really think about it, these are all relatively new institutions, right? Yeah. And, and it's like these histories weren't apparent, right, to people. They weren't apparent not only because they didn't exist, but also we were just understanding our own value. You know, all these groups that didn't have it. We just opened the African-American Museum a few years ago in D.C., Really? I mean, we're just beginning to unveil this real, true American narrative. I agree. Definitely. Now, moving on to our second question, you have an MBA from the Yale School of Management. How do you think this has aided you in your museum career? And is it something you would encourage other young professionals to pursue? You know, the other thing about being 48 is I have, <laughs> I have been witnessing a generational shift like, I think until I was about in my late 30s, I was like, oh, you know, my experiences are still kind of relevant for people who are in their 20s. But then I kind of bridged into my 40s and I was like, oh, these are not that useful. And I need to learn a lot more from younger people because it's such a different situation. Like, I'm at the tail end of a conventional upbringing right? You did this, you did that, you did that, you went to do, you worked for a couple years, you got your MBA, you kind of did finance or consulting, and then you went to do something you really love to do. Like, I'm on the tail end of that. Yeah. But now, you know, I think stress is sometimes created by like the inability to have clear decision making paths. And, and I just feel like, you know, perhaps your generation is Yes, the world is your oyster, but at the same time, there's there's a little bit of a stress that I feel that one needs to be pretty entrepreneurial in your generation, like yeah. thinking creatively about, okay, I could do that, or I could do this, or I could do that. Like the conventional route is not well-defined. Like the breadcrumbs aren't on the ground for you guys. I think we would both have to agree with 100%. that, and because we graduated in the middle of the pandemic and like we thought we were going to go into very conventional jobs and then that was just kind of like... Because we both had very conventional internships, like mm -hmm. art world normal internships. So we thought we would just keep on going with that. And then with COVID, no one was hiring. Everything was just a complete mess <laughs> and like unfamiliar for both yeah. of us. I have the chills right now because I'm so excited that you did this entire podcast, which is just like so, in, you know, this is, you're like the living example of what I just said. Like you had to be entrepreneurial. Yeah. 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 You had to buy those mics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. I'm so, um, I'm so impressed and, and just. Thank you. Thank you. Really. Thank you so much. <laughs> 
And then another thing we wanted to touch on was that you brought Tessitura to Mocha and we wanted to know like how this has made a difference in day-to-day operations. And then also if you could just explain what it is for audience members who might not know. I love Tessitura. I cannot (laughs) tell you. And you know, the other thing about like things I say, maybe they're, they're not necessarily always appropriate, but I try to be as honest as possible um, and I will say this, and corporates might hate me for it, like corporates as in for-profit entities, but, you know, you need a CRM system. You know, that's a customer relationship management system, client relationship, whatever it is, a, basically a fancy word for a database, right? In any um, nonprofit, you need a database of your supporters, of your patrons, of the people you're serving, et cetera. And you need to be able to pull those lists up at any given time. Um, and Mocha didn't have a working database, um, so I was like, oh, my goodness, I don't even know how many members we have. I don't know how to who to touch base to. And it, it it's really hard because it's really hard to touch base with like 10,000 people. Um, but it's a lot easier to touch base with five buckets of 2,000 people, right, if you know what their interests are. So we didn't even have any segmentation. We didn't really have lists that worked. Um, so I was on the hunt for the right CRM database system. But all of them were for profit. And when you start hearing the pitch from for-profit databases, it starts like, you know, as a poor nonprofit, you start tabulating the expenses. Okay, that extra add-on feature was going to cost me that much. That feature is going to cost me that much. I still don't even know how to work it. I don't even have a tech guy on staff. So all of that just made it seem impossible. Then I heard about Tessitura from another nonprofit arts organization. Oh, well, we use Tessitura. I'm like, what's Tessitura? They're like, oh, it's a nonprofit CRM system. I was like, what? That's like (laughs) unheard of. And they're like, yeah, they're amazing. And they like have this amazing uh, conference every year where all these arts organizations come together and they share best practices. And I'm like, what? Um, and and literally, they I met with them. They told me about their product, and immediately, I felt like I could trust them. Um, and and when you're mission aligned, and when you're both in the space where mission is more important than profit, and and there's no profit in in non nonprofits. Profit is the social return on your mission, right? Yeah. So it was amazing. So then one thing led to another. We we could afford them. They gave us an incredible discount. We had trouble paying the bill and they're like, listen, just pay us when you can. <laughs> and now it's just amazing. And, and um, so it, it's, it, they have 700 users now all over the world. Um, and can you imagine like one day meeting with the Sydney Opera at the conference, the next day talking to the, to the Met Opera, talking to the San Francisco Museum. I mean, it's, it's just this incredible wealth and it's a community. It's a true community. So I cannot say enough about Tessitore. And then fast forward, since we've been a member for the last several years, um, I, I recently joined the board. Um, and really, the board has prioritized um, DEIAB. So what does diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility, and belonging look like in the arts community? And the arts community, as many of us recognize, there are a lot of barriers to entry, right? Just like you're doing this podcast. When the art world, when the, when the economy goes away, the art world, it goes away first. And there are no jobs, there are no abilities, there are internships, there's nothing you can do, even though you are setting yourself up for this, you know, profession. And Mm -hmm. it's really, really hard. Yeah. I love this idea of a community based out of like an operating system, basically. It's very cool. (laughs) 
I love that you said that. That is the like most, it's also like, I think a generational thing. That's like awesome. You're like, yes, you must leverage technology, <laughs> operating systems, but yes. Can you imagine it's, and it's okay. This is going to sound weird, but it's like the test door conference is so geeky and nerdy and fun, <laughs> but also so creative and innovative and artistic. It's like the best world ever. <laughs> no, it sounds really cool. We need to go. <laughs> we definitely, definitely need to go. And they're doing internships and they're, they're trying to really make it accessible for younger, you know, younger people to be involved. So look for it. So two weeks ago on our podcast, the collaboration between Mocha and Google Arts and Culture was one of our Thursday top five stories. So to update our listeners who may have missed that episode, the headline from the art newspaper read, quote, a year after fire, Museum of Chinese in America launches digital platform with Google to celebrate its historical treasures. As part of a new virtual exhibition titled Trial by Fire, the race to save 200 years of Chinese American history, Avira can trace a recovery effort after the fire that nearly destroyed the museum's collection of more than 85,000 items on January 23, 2020. So how did this project come about? How long did it take to put the exhibition together? And did COVID-19 affect the timeline timeline of the exhibition? Thank you for mentioning us two weeks ago. We are very honored. <laughs> um, yeah, and our dear mutual friend, Alex Wah, was like, guess what? I was like, I know. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, you know, this is like the oddest thing. And, you know, I my mom was just asking me about this. And, you know, your mom asks you all the right questions and gets to the heart of things pretty quickly. But she's, you know, she was like, wow, so much more attention on Mocha. And I said, I know. And she's like, it's because of the fire. And I said, it is because of the fire. Um, and something when you know something's, and this is a little bit cliche, but when you're about to lose something, you kind of fully understand the value of it. And so when the possibility of losing 85,000 items surfaced, there was so much attention around the possibility of that loss, right? And it was almost like we came back from the ashes. And, and there's a Chinese idiom, Phoenix rising from the ashes. It was literally like a Phoenix rising. We thought everything was gone. You, you know, you're both New Yorkers. We're all New Yorkers. New York City, one of the densest neighborhoods, five alarm fire, yeah. starting on the fourth floor, Going up to the fifth floor, roof comes down, third floor roof comes down. We're in the second floor, you know, 16 hours of water hoses. Most of our stuff is paper, you know, or textiles. I'm like, all right. So I am like the whole team. We are weeping and sobbing like babies, right? Because the biggest issue is I felt that families had entrusted their collections to us. Yeah. Um, and and it, they're so rare. And the fact that they salvaged them was like they were holding on to the home country, right? They were holding on to a very difficult journey and they entrusted the museum with it. And, you know, it was so devastating that night and then the next morning when we went back. But the silver lining is that people started writing about it. Newspaper agencies started writing about it. The New York Times covered us maybe four or five times, that whole progression, that journey. Um, NPR did an interview with us. South China Morning Post brought the story international. It was just one thing after the other. And then the silver lining was Google Arts and Culture came out. They're like, wait, wait, wait. We have to make sure that people see this. And and, and how about celebrating it and, and, and putting it online? And, and just that exhibit of what happened 
in the six weeks after it because we what we were doing was every day we would give an update because it was such an outpouring and people wanted to know like what happened so we were so happy january 23rd was the one year anniversary of the fire we have recovered 98 percent of the materials it will take five years. Mm. It's amazing. I know, right? It's amazing. But it'll take years to conserve it properly. But in the same day, we launched the Google Arts and Culture exhibit. And then in addition to Trial by Fire, a lot of works were made available on the platform from your Pernament collection. How did you decide what materials to include? And is that something you left up to curators? Or did you have a larger role in deciding that? You know, um, everyone, you know, we serve 50,000 people, visitors in a year, about 4 million people on social media. Um, But we only have a staff of 13 full-time people. Um, So what's beautiful about a small museum is we can be very, very collaborative. Um, So we meet every week. Um, The senior directors meet every week, including the curators and, you know, directors of uh, different aspects of the work, the collections. And also the the 13-person team meets once a week, too. So we were able during this COVID period, because every day there was more information and things were changing in all different ways. So we would constantly pivot on based on new information. So, okay, we were going to open in April or, Mm -hmm. and then we're like, this is impossible. Then we were going to open in August when we were allowed to, but it was impossible for a variety Mm -hmm. of reasons. So when we came together with this, you know, I have to give a lot of credit to Edward Chang, um, who is a former journalist who's on our team. Uh, he had a good sense of what would be easy to digest on in this sort of online exhibit. But working closely with Herb Tam, our curator, with Andrew Abad, our associate curator, and with Yuema, the director of collections. But since we had detailed and basically um, journaled in the whole period of time um, in different ways through social media, we were able to put it together really nicely. And it was almost like a real time, you know, journal or diary of what had happened and transpired. Um, So that's pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah, that's amazing. I think this idea of something that's like easy to digest on an online platform is so important. And I feel like a lot of galleries are even struggling with that right now when they are doing OVRs. I think sometimes when you're bigger, you overthink it. And I think the thing that, you know, we launched a TikTok also um, site. Mm-hmm. And, and what TikTok, like, we're constantly overthinking TikTok. And, yeah. and, and you, it, TikTok is not about overthinking. It's about revealing, right? And it's about 30 seconds of revealing something about your true self. It's Jessica Alba dancing and like totally taking the frame and not giving enough of the frame to her daughter. I mean, it's just like weird things. And it's just... And I think it gives you a lens into, you know, just I, I think this COVID period and social media has created more um, a genuineness that um, we were lacking in, in, in our presentation overall. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, I think it's, it's really going to help, um, you know, our fabric, I guess. Yeah. So um, you mentioned that immediately after the fire, there was a lot of attention brought to MoCA. And I was wondering, I don't know if it's too early to tell, but after the art newspaper article, has there been like an increase in flow of people visiting the website? And like after the exhibition was released, did you just see an increase in general of people's interest in MoCA? Like a second wave. It was, yeah. It, oh my, that's exactly, um, you guys are so smart. <laughs> 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 
It is exactly that. It was, and I haven't even termed it that, but it was like a second wave. And I think we're so anxious and we feel an urgency to tell our story. So we're not, and also we're so small and in some ways so, you know, they call us small but mighty and like we're so, you know, scruffy, right? And and it's not like we're professional in what we do, but at the same time, we're not that calculated, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the second wave was sort of like, oh, wow, this is amazing. Why people yeah. care? People still care about us. Like we're always <laughs> slightly surprised. Um, mm-hmm. And and absolutely. And, and, and what's really come out, because it's right around Lunar New Year. Lunar New Year mm-hmm. um, starts next Friday on February 12th. We're also very anxious for the year of the metal rat, which has been very difficult for most people to say bye-bye and to welcome the golden ox. Um, But since Lunar New Year is coming up and people can't go to Chinatown and eat in restaurants, many of the corporate um, groups have been asking us to do sort of online courses um, about the history and about Chinese American history, but also about Lunar New Year traditions. So we've seen an incredible outflow of ERGs, employee, you know, resource groups asking for us to do um, a master class um, or like a little educational teach-in, um, a story time. So, so that's been really great because we are still 80% down on revenue um, expected. We have zero revenue from earned revenue, which is admissions, rentals, the shop, you know, zero pro- projected for this year. So we need to do it in donations. So you're basically only relying on contributed revenue or doing these types of master classes. And then moving away from the specific exhibit a little bit, do you have a favorite exhibition that Mocha has put on since you started? Oh, it's got to be about food, right? (laughs) You know, we did this amazing exhibit called Sour, Sweet, Bitter, Spicy, and it was about um, Chinese American cuisine. Um, And Chinese American cuisine is very much linked in with um, the waves of immigration from the Chinese diaspora. So as I mentioned, the first, the earliest immigrants uh, from China were from Southern China, so much more Cantonese. So a lot of people think that um, Chinese food is very um, one-sided or one group. And when you think about Chinese food in America, you often think about Cantonese food. Um, so it has a, it's dim sum, it's, you know, the lobster, it's like a very clear 10 course banquet if you've had that. But Chinese, Chinese food is so diverse and it has links with more so many of the provincials. Like parts of Western China, they eat a lot of lamb, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in, in, in Kunming, in Yunnan province, in, in, in South um, West China, there's a lot of fried protein bugs, you know, like it's, it's some types of, you know, interesting items as, as an appetizer, very crunchy and protein rich. Um, and then the northern Chinese, they eat a lot of dumplings and flour-based things. And um, so there's so many different cuisines. And you're seeing a little bit of that in the last 20 years in the U.S. So we had this exhibit which talked about the different types of cuisines. And we featured 28 chefs from all over the country. So famous ones like Yan Can Cook, um, but more fusion ones. And, and, and Wilson Tang from Numwa and, you know, some of the early younger ones. And we, we just featured on this incredible array of um, chefs and, and also talked about spiciness. You know, there's so many levels of spiciness and types of spice in Chinese cuisine. And I think that was one of my favorites because we did it as a large banquet table. Um, and each table setting featured a chef 
um, their cuisine and, and their journey. Um, so that was really fun. And then we had vi- videos. So it was like a in, um, multimedia uh, exhibit. That was, that was super fun. And, and, and I love that. That sounds amazing. We both love food. I think food is one of our yeah. passions. So I'm <laughs> sad we missed that. Um, we do restaurant highlights on um, our Monday episodes. Uh-huh. So oh, if you have any Chinese <laughs> restaurant recommendations that we should try, let us know because we would love to. Uh, definitely. I will send you a follow. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> what would you say is the biggest challenge to museums in general as we enter 2021 with COVID restrictions loosening? You know, a lot of museums have two revenue sources. One is contributed, which is donations. And the other Mm -hmm. one is earned, which is things that people come in and they pay and they buy things. Because we're shut down, earned revenue is depleted, right? Mm -hmm. There's zero from earned revenue. So depending on the museum makeup, you could be 20% earned or 80% earned. And in our situation, we actually, you know, lost all of our earned revenue. So that's going to be really tricky for museums. And also because we want to make things accessible and because we know that audiences all over the country are really, they're suffering. You know, we as a country, I just, I did a talk with um, with Hong Kong audience this morning, and I, I said the big difference between the Hong Kong audience that dealt with COVID earlier and a U.S. audience is I think everyone I've spoken to has lost someone they know, right? Yeah. The numbers are so massive in the U.S. that everyone has lost someone they know. And we're all mourning, um, and, and we haven't been able to mourn properly, um, whereas in China, the numbers are relatively low, um, especially as a proportion of the total population. But here, the numbers are so high. And, um, you know, I lost both my in-laws, my parents, you know, my, 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 my husband's parents. And it's, it's still something that we are all dealing with. And I think what we wanted to do is make our programming free and accessible. So we, didn't, we don't charge anything for the programs. Because people need something, love Netflix, but you need to kind of like mix it up a little bit. Um, but it's really hard because we're all in this very difficult situation. So I think that level of care, museums and arts cultural institutions are caring, you know, for people. And, you know, of course, the economy matters, all that matters. But you know what? Doing a story time with a bunch of five-year-olds and their parents knowing that their kids are having a good time, that that can change somebody's day, right? Mm-hmm. Art, art, you know, can change can change the trajectory like this. And, mm-hmm. and I know that to be true. I also think now that more museums are being able to be open at reduced capacity, mm-hmm. some people who have never been before are like going to MoMA for the first time, for example, because yeah. they can. Absolutely. I was the only person at the Met in the Egyptian, the temple. That's amazing. <laughs> never happened. Yeah. <laughs> no, that sounds like a lovely experience at the Met. <laughs> In October, MoCA was designated one of America's cultural treasures in an initiative by the Ford Foundation and awarded a $3 million grant to bolster its operations. The Ford Foundation's mission is to invest in transformative ideas, individuals, and institutions. So we were wondering if you could give us some insight into how the museum plans to use that grant. I, you know, I cannot thank um, the consortium led by the Ford Foundation enough. And I think we've got to really mark this period of time as one where the foundations really led the way to improve equity um, around funding for arts and culturals um, because it's so noticeable. Um, and the way it's noticeable is they gave us a three 
$1.1 million grant, $100,000 just for technical assistance. And they gave it to us any way we wanted it. And I think that's such an important part of the story. You know, a lot of grants are multi-year if you're going to get a large grant. And, you you know, you get a portion of it every year. And then you have to write a report. And, you know, you, you hope that they're not going to, you know, renege on it, you know, because you're nervous. They just said, how do you want it? And when do you want it? And we said, really? Like, <laughs> I said, we really need it now. And could we have it all in one lump sum? And they're like, yes. Wow, that's amazing. It, what it did was it catalyzed us. It realized that we, we are valuable. And it was a level of trust in an organization that has really had trouble understanding why people don't trust us. Is it because we're small? Is it because we're a POC? Is it because we're, you know, less known history? But it was like we couldn't get grants for a long time. And we we didn't quite understand why people didn't see the value and what, you know, that what we're trying to do. So we want to also pay it forward. Um, so we desperately do need the funds because it, it we <laughs> <laughs> Because you do. <laughs> But we want all boats to rise. So one thing that we're doing is trying to serve as a national anchor for the 28 other smaller Chinese historical museums that do similar work. So we're issuing each one of them a $2,500 honorarium um, and then to engage us in conversation once a month. That's amazing. Yeah. So we're trying to create a consortium because I think if we have an exhibit that we work really hard on and then it goes into storage, there's really no shelf life. But if we have a really good exhibit and we're like, hey, do you need an exhibit? And all it costs is to ship it over to Oregon or San Francisco or Chicago. Hey, that's great. Yeah, that is great. And then other people can see it too right. in different it cities. It increases the audience. Yes. Like- Exactly. And and then we all share resources. So, uh, you know, we're going to talk about Tessitura, we're going to talk about other, you know, resources. So that's one thing. And then the other thing we want to do more locally in New York is to help cultivate pan Asian American artists, because mm-hmm. we would love to see um, content from the museum's archives be told in, 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 in play, in, in, in theater, um, in storytelling. So have more Asian American artists cultivate their narrative through performance. So that's, we're also looking for maybe three to four local arts organizations, performance arts, because we're, we're hoping to really put that on um, over time. That's really great and so cool to learn yeah. about. And then our last question, for our listeners who have not had the opportunity to visit MoCA, could you perhaps give a little more insight into the visitor experience? And the museum is closed right now, but when will it reopen? We are so excited that we're really looking at ideas Uh, for timing for reopening because things do look like they're getting better Um, yeah so we're we're really so (laughs) i know we're so excited so i think we will be looking at something like uh, may uh, or june the problem Mm -hmm. we had was our our spaces are kind of narrow um Mm -hmm. and and also there's a cost component that that's the other thing small culturals have that is hard to maintain but the experience is really um i think quite it's one that gets to the core of one's own identity and journey. So again, it's a museum by all, for all, in the sense that when we hope you go through the chronology of this history, you will come out with a greater sense of yourself, regardless of your ancestry or background. Similar to how I felt going to the Museum of Tolerance um, in Los Angeles, or going to the African American, or going to the Holocaust Museum. It's 
one, there are things that have happened in this narrative that you really don't want to ever happen again. And I specifically refer to the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 and, and the massive discrimination that happened um, after the railroads were built and Chinese were just, you know, completely just relegated to small neighborhoods, which ended up forming into Chinatowns. Um, and, and I think that that's part of it. But what we're really excited about, and this is top secret, but I know you have a huge listener base, <laughs> but we are actually taking this time also, we just secured our permanent home and we are actually working with Ralph Applebaum Associates um, and they're the foremost museum designers. They just finished the African-American. They worked on the Holocaust Museum. They are the team on the Obama Center and they are helping us redesign the new museum, Mocha of Ch- Museum of Chinese America. And we will be launching an extremely innovative technology, comprehensive, experiential museum. And that's happening in a few years, but we're in the process of designing the concept design, the schematic design, and it's going to be amazing. So, and it'll be 10 times larger in the core presentation than it is now. And it's going to have a theater and amazing uh, shop and a place you can learn how to make dumplings. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. (laughs) Sounds lovely. Yeah. (laughs) We can't wait to visit. Don't tell anyone. It's top (laughs) Okay, we won't. (laughs) So I think that's it from us. But is there anything else you would like to say? And is there anywhere people can go on to donate or follow the museum or anything like that? I just want to say, um, Paige and Anna, you guys are amazing. And I'm so encouraged by both of you. And I'm, I'm like, really, like, like I'm really excited <laughs> that um, your story is one that, you know, you, you took a really, you know, I, a lot of people in my gen, like, we're just talking about, like, I, I guess the word we use is, like, we feel like you guys have been robbed of, like, a good time, you know, in your current, you know, in your life. But at the same time, Like, it's so exciting to know, like, that you're doing this and you're being innovative and you're making the best of it, even though I'm sure it is really difficult. But trust me, we're going to have a lot of parties for you guys at the museum when we all reopen (laughs) so that you guys can have a good time. So make sure you, like, visit all the museums you're interviewing, getting to know. Um, And, yeah, I mean, visit us online. We're doing a lot. We're launching our new website Today at five o'clock. So exciting. <laughs> Very exciting. Five o'clock, new website. Um, so visit Mocha NYC, M O C A N Y C dot org. And it's a new website. It's a di- designed by workshops, W K S H P S. And they're so cool. And they've done, designed a ton of awesome museums, websites. So it's really, it's, it's, it's much more dynamic. And there's a lot more content. And then it'll take you to Google Arts and Culture, it'll take you to all these other places. But yeah, just, I'm going to just encourage your audiences and, you know, to, you know, diversify a little away from Netflix, you know, because there's so much exhibits online and stuff you can do and um, take a step in that direction because it's, we need to get through the next few months, but just super grateful to both of you. You're awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. We are so excited to get to learn more about Mocha and your role in it. Yeah. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. No, thank you. And and as they say in Chinese, we say "jiao," add gas. <laughs> Just, you can do it.